Down on down and now and gone We're narrow-minded floating along Bring the kids, it's a bloody good place to be There's a bakery and a primary school A decent pub and a public pool There's a roundabout and a bloody good petting zoo to boot So come on down and grab a beer You can stay if you're from here And if you're not, you best be moving along from Narragong You can G'day You want Nick fucking cans G'day Come on down to Narragong Jesus, it'll wrap it up, mate we got a decent oh, for fuck's sake, mate, give it a rest. Play the bloody song and sit down. You're meant to be a bloody professional. G'day, cunts. Welcome back to the Oral History Project for the charming southeastern South Australian town of Narra. In the first instalment, you were introduced to Cliff Shanky, a fascinating man who helped Australian Charles Darwin achieve his goals of becoming a successful screenwriter. It's hard to imagine, knowing him now, that Cliff ever faced any struggles of his own. But his artistic greatness was forged in the fire of heartache and pain. We'll be walking with him through that fire today in On the Edge of an Existential Cliff. Nara's long been known for its art scene. A while back, the council replaced all the bins in town with ones that looked like bales of hay, for one thing. But once you've spent a while marvelling at those, you might turn to take in the mural that the junior primary kids did on the side of the library, or stop into Ruth's bakery to see the lizards she painted on hubcaps and hung up on the walls there. Bloody beautiful they are. She's got names for each one of them, and the price is up on a little tag alongside. If you buy a pie and a cup of tea, she's even been known to knock off a few bub. But the one thing Nara always lacked, the one gaping absence in an otherwise full complement of artistic disciplines, of multitudinous creative visions, was a native literary movement. Now, I'll grant you, Bibsy Mobs published his weekly joke in The Debater, and you could always count on Bruce Wynn for a ribald limerick about the maiden on the old Murray punt. But the soul of Nara had never been picked up, turned over, explored, lovingly examined, and then expressed in the written word, the way it had in the many songs celebrating the town. In the beautifully carved wooden sculptures of its best-known landmarks, or on the side of a hubcap. That all changed with Cliff. Cliff had always been different. Shanky's third son, he hadn't developed the keen athletic or social abilities of his older brothers. By the time Cliff got to Narra High School, Roger Jr. was captain of the footy team, and Reginald, playing full forward for the Roos, was making a name for himself for scoring as often off the field as on it. Those two cut a wide path as they strode confidently through the narrow halls of Narra High, and into that path stepped cautious, quiet Cliff. At his dad's request, he went out for the footy team, but the coach wasn't too bloody interested after Cliff spent all of the first practice riding out eternity in the sheep poo that covered the footy field. Although he never failed to impress his teachers with impeccable penmanship and the best bloody manners of any kid ever to go through Narrow High, it was in the toilets that Cliff began to shine. While the other kids were still learning how to spell Mary is a skank, Cliff was expounding on the tragedy of man's partially fulfilled quotidian ambitions. When he was 13, he won a poetry competition at the Royal Show for a haiku he wrote about his boots. Two big bloody boots, both bloody covered in mud. Mum will take care of them. His aptitude for the written word was matched only by his lack of social graces. 
Teachers were impressed by his quiet dedication and earnest demeanour, but his fellow students took less of an interest in his ability to compare their thighs to the trunks of gum trees, or their hair to freshly cut hair. It wasn't until he was 18, though, that Cliff realised his artistic vision. Walking out of Narra High on his last day of school, he left behind him toilet walls covered in the exploratory musings of a pubescent, nascent wordsmith, and left towards... nothing. His classmates wandered out of those big bloody doors and turned left towards the shearing sheds, right towards their parents' farm, or went straight to the pub by way of the dole office. But Cliff wasn't cut out for a life of manual labour, nor one of darts, drafts and dole checks. His dad had told him there'd always be a place for him at Shanky's Hayrakes, maybe managing the books or working in the PR department, but he had enough of living in his brother's shadows, and after Reg had come up with a new slogan, Shanky's Hayrakes, they'll rake your fucking hay! There wasn't a lot of call for another copywriter. He looked out on the future, and nothing looked back. And so it was that Cliff turned around and walked back into Narra High, through the wide-open front doors, past the toilets where he warmed the first embers of his artistic fire, the classrooms where he'd charmed teachers and alienated classmates, and out onto the oval where he'd first felt the bitter pains of an artist's boundless spirit, shackled by a mundane world. Eternity, he'd spelled out, in pellets of sheep shit as a young lad. Eternity had represented the opportunity of a creative soul, and eternity had been his aspiration. Now, eternity was looking back at him, and in its eyes he saw only doubt and unfulfilled dreams. Eternity was the stuff of boyhood, he thought. The inspired braggadocio of a young man defying gravity as he grows toward the sky and simultaneously, paradoxically, lowers his voice to the depths of great import. Perhaps it was time to put away childish things, Cliff thought. So he knelt, and in the pellets of his most organic medium spelled out, I am a... He waited for inspiration to strike. The remaining pellets lay immobile, refusing to form themselves into the shape of a future that everyone else seemed so easily to find. They would not form the words of any of the traditional and respected narrow professions, not Bricky, nor Ambo, nor PE teacher, nor local member for creeks, ponds, and that bloody big puddle in front of the pub every time it rains. As he stared down at the sheep droppings that denied his every prayer for inspiration, Cliff began to think that his future looked more and more like a heap of shit. In a rage, he kicked away the sheep shit letters and ran desperately across the oval, past the goalposts and the signs advertising his father's seemingly predestined success, and into the bush out back. Hurtling through the trees, Cliff jumped fallen logs and ducked under leaning branches. His breath tearing at his lungs, he barely noticed the scratches on his legs and arms from the thorns of Nara's legendary wild roses but he noticed, just in time to catch himself, the edge of the approaching narrow cliffs. Stretching for kilometres in both directions from town, the narrow cliffs overlook the local bend of the Narangong River, a tributary of the mighty Murray and the lifeblood of the town back when wool was still rafted to the city by the narrow puntmen of yore. Standing on the edge of these mighty stone walls, looking down at the pulsing artery of Nara's economic success and the vast expanse of low scrub and jagged rock that insulated this warm, friendly, well-mannered town from those fucking uncultured Philistines in Gambo, Cliff opened his mind to a thought that was to change his life. I like Cliffs. The thought felt good and right, and he turned it over again in his mind. He let it expand to fill the rushing void in his head. I like Cliffs. 
he said out loud. As he said it, Cliff felt the crushing, shapeless, gelatinous doubt he'd experienced on the steps of Narra High first melt and swirl and then begin to solidify into a hard and polished purpose. My name is Cliff, he said as his confidence crystallised. He invoked the mantra again, like some desert thief chanting at a crack in a wall and expecting to see treasure. My name is Cliff, and I like cliffs. As surely as Robert Frost felt the world open the first time he had to ride the long way home in the snow, Cliff felt it open for him now. He bent, taken out his pocket knife, and carved into the red rock high above the mighty river, his first poem as an adult. A solemn incantation of the words that gave his life meaning. My name is Cliff, and I like cliffs. I came running here to this cliff of stone when I was on a cliff of doubt. Looking down upon the graceful trees, tender seed of art grows now into a tree. I like this cliff. My name is Cliff. His purpose now truly set in stone, Cliff turned and walked back through the bush and among the wild roses across the narrow high oval and through the classrooms, out through the doors and left onto the road that led to both his home and to glory. The very next day, Cliff started his career as Narra's first poet laureate. He burst onto the Narra art scene and started holding regular poetry readings at Ruth's. The beta started publishing Cliff's Corner, sometimes a short poem, more often his advice to young writers, updates on Narra's burgeoning literary scene, and his thoughts on poetic technique. Many's the young writer who's left Narra for the big smoke, carrying with him Cliff's advice on the fine art of using identical words in proximate sentences. He led a bloody revolution to celebrate the town in rhythm and in rhyme, and the town's been forever better for it. His old man played more than a small role. You might not believe it, but there's not much money in writing the weekly literary column for the best bloody newspaper in the tidiest town in South Australia, 1993, 2003 and 2008. His old man kept him stuck in pens, paper and a place to write. Shanky converted the old hayrake warehouse in the centre of town into an artist loft that would make Warhol weep into his soup with envy. The concrete floor and lingering aroma of grease lent the place an air of authenticity and the fridge full of beer was enough to bring crowds willing to tolerate it. He even had a bloody espresso machine. By the time he was 30, life was going swimmingly for Cliff. His poetry had touched the hardest hearts He'd won the coveted Golden Scroll for Best Poetic Work at the show down Murray Bridge five years running, and his collected works from the cliffside had recently hit the presses to much acclaim. Those fucking gambos barely know their Shakespeare from a sheep's ass, but even they'd invited him to give a reading at the inauguration of the Southeastern Cultural Centre. Truly, his words were a bridge across cultures. By 32, his own cultural horizons broadened after trying Euros on a trip to Adelaide. His work started to reflect a sense of global brotherhood and an anxiety at geopolitical tension. Confronted with the darker side of human nature, he responded in the only way he'd ever known, with art. While other people might have been content to face injustice by sitting idly on the seat of a bus or hiding behind a hastily constructed stockade, Cliff responded in the most powerful medium, poetry. In his Little Red Poem, he explored the twin pillars of the soul, savagery and hope. The Book of Bloody Mao, and the theories of Vladimir Lenin. The machetes of the Bloody Mao Mao, against the guitar of dead John Lennon. Selling guns to Iran and the Contra. Selling napalm to Pol Pot. Estoy en esto Contra. Prefiero los hippies smoking pot. 
Seems like every country's got their gorillas. Even Peru's got the shining path. In Indonesia, they're poaching bloody gorillas. Now there's got to be a better path. When it seems there's no way, we'll find a way. Because after today, it'll be a new day. Do we let evil in or let the love shine in? Will the bastards win or the best of us win? Finn. The palm shade off not only is global awakening, but also two weeks of learn Spanish the easy way tapes he'd picked up at the library. It was also the debut of the new poetic form he's become known for pioneering, near rhyme. Rhyme, as Cliff was always happy to explain to eager students, young and old, was when one word sounded exactly the same as another word. Near rhyme, however, broke the conventions of poetry. Near rhyme, Cliff would say, is one word that sounds kind of like another word, but is not actually the same word. It was an absolute crime when those so-called noble bastards passed him over for their prize that year, but those Euro cunts can keep their prize and their bloody abba. Cliff, he came out laughing in the end when that poem won him a bottle of plonk and half a lamb at the Southeastern Regional Art Festival that year. It was the height of his career, and no one could touch him. But the biggest fish swim in the deepest waters, and in the deepest waters there are, uh, I don't know, bloody sharks or something. Those giant squid things with big eyes and a hundred tentacles just waiting to get made into the world's biggest fucking calamari. Eels, maybe, even. The head of the Murray Bridge show had called up wanting to run a retrospective on the southeastern shove, the decade-long renaissance of regional poetry that Cliff had single-fucking-handedly pioneered. Cliff's later and more famous works were widely available, of course. It was his earliest efforts, the first glimmerings of young genius that were going to pull the show together. Back up at the old shanky place, Cliff sorted through the filing cabinet of family history. Mixed in with vaccination records and pictures of hay were his earliest flirtations with the written word acrostic poems dedicated to the fact that his mum makes unawful meatloaf, or his name spelled out in macaroni, between pages stiff with clag glue and still shedding glitter, a gilt and pinked edge peeked up at him. Aha, thought Cliff, as he recognised the city of Narangong watermark behind the gothic letters at the top of the page, Certificate of Birth. Though the history of a great man may stretch back across generations, he said aloud, thinking what a prize this would be for the retrospective. Surely his story only truly begins when his mum pops him out. And he read fondly down the page, past the time and date, birth size and weight, and on to where his name, the title of his story, one might say, was writ. Eric Alfred fucking Shanky. His fingers trembled as he read and reread the page. There was no mistaking the date nor time. Cliff dropped the page and reached for a pen. It was three hours later his mum and dad got home, finding the door a crack and the house dark. The birth certificate lay on the kitchen table, and next to it, a note. A man has few things in life to call his own. His haircut, his shoes, and his name. I worked hard to build a place for myself in this world, wrestled with the meter, and toiled over each spondee. And now I sit here with nothing but a mullet and a pair of blunnies. Farewell, sweet mum and dad. I've gone to jump off the Eric. With a shriek, Mum set out for the door, old man Shanky hot behind her. Up the road they ran, up and past the school, past the narrow oval and the goalposts and the signs and into the bush out back. Through the trees and the scrub towards thickets of Narra's legendary wild roses and the mighty cliffs beyond. Old man Shanky lifted his knees high as he'd not done since his glory days playing for the ruse, but was still barely able to keep pace with Mum as she tore forward. 
He ran so fast that he spilled full tilt into her broad back and she stopped short in a thicket of roses, panting and heaving like a draft horse on a hot day. Sitting before them, between the roses and not five metres from the precipitous drop, was Cliff, a rose held between his fingers and a young lady sitting beside him. Hi, Mum, he said, beaming at her. Fancy seeing you here. This is Rose. Actually, she began, it's pronounced... She was out picking flowers as I walked by, and wouldn't you know, we got to talking. Here she is picking flowers, right? And she tells me her name's Rose. There's actually a bit of an accent thing over the E, Rose began. Not just any flowers, mind you. Here she is picking roses. And I don't have to remind you that her name is Rose. I believe it's called a diacritic acute, she continued. Well, isn't that a coincidence, I thought. So I start to tell her my name's Cliff. Now I pause, mind you, having recently discovered that my name might not actually be Cliff. But as I do, I start to ponder. What's in a name? A name is what you call yourself, right? Now you can't let other people control that. Here's I've gone my whole life being a Cliff. And I don't mean to stop just because of something written on a piece of bloody paper. I'll be in charge of my own destiny, and I won't let anyone tell me different. You just can't. That's what this beautiful rose taught me. It sounds just like the pink wine, actually. What a bloody beautiful story, said old man Shanky. That's the stuff dreams are made of. Too bloody right, Dad. She's my muse. And he gazed lovingly into her eyes, holding a rose in one hand and her delicate fingers softly in the other. It felt good and right, and he opened himself up to the thought that was to change his life. High above the mighty Narangong River, Cliff ran his hands over the words he'd carved into the rocks years earlier and let inspiration lift him. My name is Cliff, and I like Cliffs. Your name is Rose, and you are as beautiful as a rose. Cliff felt the hard and polished purpose of his solitary existence soften and bend and reshape itself into the form of love as the sun set on the legendary Narra Cliffs. What a ripping yarn. That was On the Edge of an Existential Cliff. We hope you'll join us next time for another instalment of Welcome to Narangong. Until then, take it easy. Alright, you put that fucking guitar down. We've got some talking to do.